It's day six of our spring seven-day session, the 6th of October 2017. And today we're going to take up a story from uh, the Hidden Lamp, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women, and edited by Florence Caplow and Susan Moon. And this story um, is called Puna's Offering. And it comes, uh, um, it's from the Pali Sutras. It's um, one of the, um, the stories, sort of the back stories on verses from the Dhammapada. And um, it's quite straightforward. It's not a koan, um, so it's pretty clear what, what's going on. Um, the editors of this book call their stories koans, but really some of them are more like just teaching stories rather than um, uh, enigmatic like a koan. So here, here's the story. Puna was a poor servant. One day she made a cake for herself of powdered rice bits. Then she saw the Buddha on the road, bowed reverentially and said, Your reverence, this cake is made mainly of broken rice bits and has neither oil nor flour in it. It may not be sweet, but if you would be so kind as to accept it, you will, will enable me to obtain the sweets of Nirvana. The Buddha accepted the offering of the cake of broken rice bits. Puna said, Your reverence, just as this cake, when I offered it to you, became flavorful and worthy of you, so may I, who am a slave to others, but have now come to you, be freed from the enslavement of desire. May it be so responded the Buddha, and he went on to preach a sermon. At the end of the sermon, Puna attained, obtained the divine cake of the stream-enterer. There's a little bit more detail if you go back to the, um, the original in the, in the suttas. And um, in that story, she, uh, she's uh, Puna, we first see Puna when she's pounding rice late at night and this was heavy work um, this is also what um, Hui Nung was um, given as work when he first went to the monastery after his awakening the sixth ancestor so it could either be just using a big heavy mallet which would bring down on the rice to break it up into f small pieces and make flour or it could be a, a weighted uh, device with a sort of treadle on it that you that you work with your legs that raises and lowers a, a heavy weight over with a counterweight attached to it over your your um, um, block on which you're pounding the rice. But anyway, hard work, and she's doing this late at night, and she sees um, monks, uh, some of the Buddha's disciples, up late at night, and she's curious. She's curious about this. Um, she just thinks to self, well, why, why do they need to be up late at night? I know why I do, I'm a, I'm a slave, but wonder what's, why, why they need to be. And, um, and, and so this is sort of in her mind, and later on the Buddha answers her question, and he says that, um, he says, Puna, you cannot go to sleep because you are poor and have to work hard. My sons, the bhikkhus, do not go to sleep because they always have to be vigilant and ever mindful. Um, but this this little bit of extra information we get from the Dhammapada does um, does uh, illuminate the, what kind of life she was living a little bit. We'll come to that in a moment. So it's a simple story of of this poor servant offering her, her cake of rice bits and and asking for just it's a spontaneous act she just she's out she's made this cake for herself and she is out the next day after having seen the monks and and sees the Buddha and just 
is moved by him to offer her food, which he accepts and eats. And then she asks him about awakening, and he he says, may it be so. In other words, may you, may you awaken. Now we're going to turn to um, uh, the, the reflection that's given here by a, a teacher. And um, the teacher's name is Adrian Ross. And uh, she's a, um, a guiding teacher of the British Columbia Insight Meditation Society and also a retired physician who now leads retreats and teaches MBSR, that's Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, to people suffering from chronic, chronic pain. And um, I'm going to read pretty much most of her commentary and comment on it and bring in some other material. She says, Reading this ancient story, I find the attitudes of both Puna and the Buddha deeply inspiring. Puna is open, direct, and unburdened by herself, despite being burdened by enslavement. I love her straightforward trust of her own value. In offering the simple cake, she is offering herself exactly as she is, without apology, shame, or embarrassment. She seems to sense that if he can accept her rice cake, he is accepting the possibility for her to awaken, to taste the sweets of nirvana. And the Buddha's acceptance of her offering acknowledges her inherent worth, regardless of her gender and class. And more particularly of her caste. If we think of, of, of Indian culture and its emphasis on uh, castes and higher castes, not even um, wanting the lower caste to walk in their shadows, let alone to, to share food with them. So it would be normal um, in, in this kind of situation, when, when coming from a lower caste and, and, and living as a slave, to have issues around self-esteem. Uh, and we get we get inklings in this little vignette, this tiny story, of the treatment she was getting. She's working somewhere where they're making rice flour, and yet what she's eating is probably the sweepings from the floor, the bits the bits of rice that fly off that that block and and drop to the floor. So she's not being cared for by her her uh, masters, her, her owners, so to speak at all. And then she's she's also working late into the night doing this heavy work. Slavery is such a pernicious thing and it still exists today in many parts of the world. And it it, it is um, probably among the most destructive of institutions of any it breaks up families, it, it treats people brutally. Often um, people are abused sexually, um, women and boys. It really it steals people's dignity and their autonomy and, and also creates intergenerational trauma. I recently read a book that was called Post-Traumatic Slavery Disorder. It was by a, a, an African-American psychologist who went into the into the um, effects that slavery has now still on um, African Americans. African Americans have received no apology and no reparations and they're living in a place where white supremacy is is not just tolerated now but, but um, uh, encouraged not to mention all the other ways in which they are still oppressed. Police brutality against blacks not being um, punished, uh, mass incarceration goes on and on. So this is all, all um, highly, highly traumatic and 
and um, shapes one's, one's experience of oneself and the world in often very, very um, uh, pernicious and, and, and hard to change ways. But right there in, in, in this offering she makes, we see her, her freedom. She's, she probably doesn't get much to eat. She's got this little, little rice cake that she's made herself for her meal. And yet when she meets the Buddha, she just gives it away. She doesn't think, oh, I'll go hungry today. Or, when will I get, when will my next meal be coming? She just makes this offering and so it so creates this dignity to do this, to be able to give, the dignity of being able to give something, even if it's very small. It might be small regarded from outside, but for her that was a, a major offering. But without any any deliberation she makes this offering. This empowers her to go further and take the next step, speaking aloud of her resolve to be free. Puna knows directly the painful bondage of slavery, but she does not ask to be freed from enslavement to others. Instead, she has the powerful attention, intention to be free from the inner enslavement of desire. You could say she understands that 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 enslavement is fought on an, a kind of inner battlefield. Sure, she would also want to be freed from her actual bondage, but she she had this insight about about where the the battle was actually being thought fought. Um, reminds me of of story I heard about a. Um, a Tibetan monk who was in prison for I think it was 18 years, frequently tortured, and um, after he was released, um, he said that his the real battle was the battle not to hate, and he said that that this was his his struggle all the time that he was um, in prison not to hate his imprisoners, and. The reason he gave for for um, he, when asked about how he'd managed to maintain this, he said, "Because if I had given in to hate, it would mean that the Chinese had won." Um, Recently on the radio, I heard a, um, a woman speak, a 90-year-old, name was Edith, either Iger or Eager, and she just published a book called The Choice, which was why she was on the radio. And she, she is a survivor of Auschwitz. She was, she was rescued when the, when the camp was liberated. She was rescued from a pile of corpses at the age of 16. And... She devoted her life, she became a psychologist and then devoted her practice, uh, psychology practice, to helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, she related um, in this interview um, that she still suffers herself from this. If she sees barbed wire or hears raised voices, she said, she said I'm back in Auschwitz. And and she she probably means because this is a way that PTSD works that she's actually experiencing the the sensations and 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 sounds and smells of of being back there the memories are so vivid. And then she also told of of a um, what her mother had said to her as they were. Um, traveling uh, across Europe to the camps and she, her mother said I don't know where we are going 
But wherever it is, remember that no one can take from you what you put into your own mind. Her mother was killed, she survived, but she remembered these words and they, they provided her with strength. We can have our, our body imprisoned, but not our mind, unless we let it be imprisoned. And this was what she undertook to help people to see who she was treating for PTSD. And she said that the way she worked with it was um, when when um, painful feelings came up, when these these uh, episodes would would sweep through her. And the most difficult thing she worked with, she said, was her guilt about having survived. She said it took her years and years and years to to forgive herself. But she said when thoughts and feelings come up, she. She would say to herself, they're not good feelings, they're not bad feelings, they're my feelings. And, and through saying this, she would just accept them. And then she said, I made a choice about how long uh, I would entertain them for. And then I would release them, I would let them go. And she said, you can be victimized, but you don't have to be a victim. She said, that's, that's something we have some choice around. And that was where the title for her book came from. So Puna, clearly she's, she's mistreated, she's um, um, victimized, but she's not a victim. As the Buddha responds, may it be so, this is to Puna's um, aspiration to awaken, to be freed from the enslavement of desire. The commentator here, Adrian Ross, says, I think he is acknowledging the purity and determination of her wish to be free, and also that it is absolutely possible for her, and thus for each one of us right now, to enter the stream of awakening. The first stage of opening into the flow of awakening is termed stream entry. One's dharma eye opens to selfless true nature, rendering an unshakable conviction in the dharma and the path to complete awakening. Once she has entered the stream, Puna is assured of following the flow to fulfill her heart's wish, complete freedom from desire, aversion and ignorance. Why this, this vow is so powerful, this, this aspiration to be free of our own um, <clears throat> desires and aversions and ignorance, is that it's a vow that doesn't rely on anything outside us. It doesn't rely on the unreliable, on conditions. She continues, I am so moved by Puna's ability to trust and her courage not to hold back, to trust that all she is, just as she is, is enough. I and so many women I meet struggle with trying to get it right, trying to be perfect. Practice can come, become a project rather than a simple offering. Puna is unburdened by painful comparisons. She has both humility and self-respect. So much of my life and practice has been about being trying to be good enough, trapped and comparing, judging and fixing. Each time I believe that I'm not enough as a physician, teacher, mother, partner or friend, I reinforce the sense that it's impossible to be free just as I am. Whenever I identify with inadequacy, I hold back. I can actually feel the contraction. 
I can feel my energy becoming blocked by I can't and I'm not enough and I'm worthless. I limit myself by my views and my views of others limit them. So there's a, there's a lot here we can look into. In spite of the the uh, fate that that life had had dealt Puna, she she has this trust. And she expresses it in her giving, in her, in her, her just um, making this offering. She trusts, as, as the commentator says, all that she is, just as she is, and that it's enough. Master Rinzai's um, words, What is it that ails you? Lack of faith in yourself is what ails you. Um, Puna is, is unburdened by comparisons. She has both humility and self-respect. Many of us don't have that balance we fall into extremes, uh, either um, fall into um, thinking that we're uh, worthless, not, a, not good enough, or we can, we can um, retreat into uh, pride, puffing ourselves up, in classical Buddhism, there is a there's a teaching about this. It's called the three conceits. The three conceits of self, and they are um, our feeling, feelings of superiority. I am better than you. Our feelings of inferiority. I am worse than you, and also interestingly of equality. I'm as good as you. And within these, um, there's um, so much torment, ways in which we torment ourselves with these um, conceits, these um, constructions we, we make about the self. One writer says, we, within these are a whole tormented world of comparing, evaluating, and judging that afflicts our hearts. And it's helpful to understand that this, this really, these habits, which so many of us suffer from, are, are a kind of emotional affliction. And so we, they require us to, um, to meet them with, uh, with the heart, with an emotional response. I just want to read a little bit from an article about these three conceits. It help us to, to, to recognize them when they arise. And this is um, by uh, a, a um, Pasana teacher, Christina Feldman. Conceit manifests in the ways we contract around a sense of self and other. It lies at the core of the identities and beliefs we construct, and it enables those beliefs to be the source of our acts, words, thoughts, and relationships. Superiority conceit is the belief in being better or worthier than another. It is a kind of conceit that builds itself upon our appearance, body, mind, intelligence, attainments, stature, and achievements. We can even gather, it can even gather around our meditative superiority. 
we see someone shuffling and restless on their meditation cushion and then congratulate ourselves for sitting so solidly. Or we, we are the first one in the zendo in the morning and the last one out at light, night so we can feel like we're being a strong practitioner. We might go through life hypercritical, quick to spot the flaws and imperfections in others, sure we would never behave in such unacceptable ways. Superiority conceit is easily spotted when it manifests in arrogance, bragging, or proclaiming our excellence to the world. On retreat, we may find ourselves rehearsing the conversations we will have with our partner, recounting our trials and triumphs, but especially our heroism in completing the retreat where others failed. And then it can be a whole kind of range of conceit that we can get into as meditators when looking um, at non-meditators. It can be subtle in our inner beliefs, in our specialness, rightness or invulnerability. Superiority conceit looks like a safer refuge than inferiority conceit, thoughts of being worse than another, but in truth both cause the same suffering. Feelings of superiority have the power to distort compassion into its near enemy, pity, and to stifle the capacity to listen deeply. Superiority conceit disables our receptivity to criticism because we become so convinced in the truth of our views and opinions. It can also mean that we may not um, listen to instructions or follow instructions. I think it's also fair to say that, that it is often um, a mask for the opposite, for, for deep feelings of um, unworthiness or um, not okayness. It's, it's um, probably much more common than we think among uh, people who are particularly high achieving. Feel, they feel compelled to um, be perfect in what they do. And of course, one is always disappointed in that because perfection is unreachable. There may be a feeling that that uh, that if they can just do something really worthy, then they will feel worthy. But this sense of unworthiness is is it's an it's an endless blind passion. So we never can fill that hole. It's impossible. I know someone who um, worked for a long time. Um, in advocacy for an international aid agency um, and she was working at a, at a high level going to meetings in Davos and Geneva and other places and, and lobbying uh, lawmakers and um, one of the things she that she found so discouraging was um, how much ego there was at these meetings and not just among the government people, but among the, the NGOs as well. And no doubt these people would be going in for, the, for um, thinking it was for the best possible reasons. And it would be, there would be, be genuine desire to, to do good, to help. But there was work that they hadn't done as well, the inner work, that is also so necessary. Because without that inner work going along in tandem to the work in the world, then there can be, we can sabotage 
the process. Inferiority conceit is more familiar territory for many of us, probably because a chronic sense of unworthiness is so endemic in our culture. The torment of feeling worse than others and not good enough is the daily diet of inferiority conceit. And we can wonder at what the causes of this, this, this endemic um, affliction is. Um, probably one is just the, the way our society has so geared itself to bombarding us with messages that we are uh, lacking, that we need to acquire stuff to uh, fix that lack. That may be one, one of the factors. All these messages that we're receiving constantly which are disempowering. And I wonder if another reason is just our, our, our feelings of, of guilt and sadness as human beings about what we as uh, are collectively doing to our home. This can be deep and gnawing. And, and, and hard to face. And, and by, by um, letting it come forth in this in our sense of inferiority, we can it maybe feels a little bit more controllable. If we if we blame ourselves, the Christina Feldman goes on to talk about different students that she has worked with in retreat who would come and and um, report something, and she would tell them they were doing well, and they would refuse to to um, acknowledge it. A student on retreat came in distress to report that none of her more familiar dramas and agitation were appearing, and she was convinced that she was doing something wrong. The teacher suggested that this odd experience could actually be one of calmness, and was surprised when the suggestion was met with even more distress and denial, with the student exclaiming, calm is not something I do. Another student experiencing rapture in her practice continued to assert that it was menopausal flashes, unable to accept that she could experience deep meditative states. We can so be so convinced by our, our view that we have of ourselves that we miss our good qualities. We don't give full credence to our achievements. We can be kind, responsible, responsive, work hard, all these different good qualities, and, and think that we're hopeless. Inferiority conceit gathers in the same places as superiority conceit, the body, the mind, and appearance, as well as the long list of mistakes we have made throughout our lives. One point I actually did an exercise of of making a point of writing down and listing um, achievements and good qualities as a way of counteracting our um, how we can just focus on our our failures our our lacks actually consciously make an effort to to balance out our distorted view. Inferiority conceit is fertile in its production of envy, resentment, judgment, and blame, which go round and round in a vicious circle of storytelling, serving only to solidify our belief in an imperfect self. 
I read somebody with something where someone said um, that thinking we should be perfect is a is a kind of arrogance because it's thinking we should godlike. Governed by inferiority conceit, we may be adept at bowing to others, yet find it impossible to bow to our own selves, to acknowledge the wholesome sincerity that keep us persevering on this path. Loving kindness needs to start at home with ourselves and this is often um, for people in the West is often a real sticking point because the 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 burden of our, our sense of worthlessness is so strong so heavy This article it goes on to also talk about this um, equality conceit, and this is one we don't have time to go into it in too much detail. But is um, is really when you we want to level everything out, and and think that we're all we're all um, uh, the same. So it's, it's ignoring difference. Ignoring the fact that there may be um, people who have something to teach us, and also people for, to whom we might be responsible, because we they are uh, needing our help, our guidance. So both of these. All, all forms of conceit give rise to the endless thoughts and storytelling that solidify the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. Liberating ourselves from conceit and the agitation it brings begins with our willingness to sensitize ourselves to the subtle and obvious manifestations of conceit as they appear. The clues lie in our judgments and comparisons, the views we construct about ourselves and others. Suffering, evaluating, envy and fear are all signals asking us to pause and listen more deeply. We learn to bow to those moments, knowing that they are moments when we can either solidify conceit or liberate it. Instead of feeding the story, we can nurture our capacities for mindfulness, restraint and letting go. Instead of volunteering for suffering, we may be able to volunteer for freedom. It is not an easy undertaking, yet each moment that we are present and compassionate in the process of conceit building is a moment of learning to take a step on the path to freedom. And this was exactly, exactly um, what, what Puna was doing. Taking a step on the path to freedom. Trusting in her own innate worth. Going back to our commentator, whenever I identify with inadequacy, I hold back. I can actually feel the contraction. I can feel my energy becoming blocked by I can't and I'm not enough. And so forth. All the, we each have our own, our own um, brand of, of label that we use. One psychologist calls it, calls it um, 
our, our imagined core deficit. One of the one of the ironies of of um, getting into spiritual practice is is that we come um, often out of a longing to to rid ourselves of these afflictions, these emotional afflictions, these these deep and painful feelings that we have been struggling with since we were children. And we, we find that actually they come more to the fore. The very things that we were hoping to, to relieve ourselves from. And this is, can be particularly acute, I think, in, in Zen. We come, we come to it and then we discover that we're not enlightened. And we might, maybe didn't even know that. We discover that there are these, these ancestors who have developed these gates that we're supposed to pass through. And, and so the, all our, our sense of, of being insufficient are um, brought out. It f can feel like a slap in the face, actually. We we're we're given a koan, and we don't have to struggle with it and try and get a handle on it and find a way of entering. In one in one um, description of um, of koans, um, can't remember who this is now, but he says a koan is like take, taking a blind person's stick away, turning them around several times, and then pushing them to the ground. What? This is supposed to be compassionate. It's, it seems warped, cruel, sadistic even, and certainly dysfunctional. <laughs> what is going on? In, in the Mumon Khan, they uh, was mentioned in one of the commentaries, the classic folk legend, which was that uh, Mother Tigress um, when she gave birth to cubs, she would push all her cubs off a high cliff. And then she would only suckle the ones who managed to climb up that cliff and get back to her. And we can, we can understand this, this seemingly perverse practice in the light of this that that disorienting us in this way and presenting with these us with these barriers is cruel uh, in the way that that nature is cruel you can see this tigress doing this in order to only only allow the strong cubs to survive or to to give the cubs this gift of having the ground taken out from underneath them and go into free fall and experience that and survive it. Nature is cruel. This, this world in which we live is brutal in many ways. Yesterday, I found a, a large cockroach on my curtain in my bedroom, and so I opened the the sliding door, and and flicked the cockroach out onto the concrete path that was just outside my room, and it looked a bit stunned for a second, and then it started to move to go to to shelter, 
and out of nowhere a chicken came, ran up and ate the cockroach. And two things struck me. I, I'd never seen this happen before, but one was, oh, chickens are predators. They're, all day long they're eating things alive. But then also thinking about the cockroach going down that chicken's gullet, at what point does it does it die? Is it aware of being corroded by gigastric juices and, and, and broken up by the, the little stones and the chicken's, um, whatever they call it? What a way to, to die alive. And every single one of us has ha, can can surely identify moments in our lives when when things have been uh, the rug has been pulled out from under us when we've found ourselves peddling our feet in midair above above the void Everything we hold on to is, 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 is stolen from us, whisked away. Adrienne Ross um, tells a story from when she was a physician and she had she had this guy who would come to see her pretty much every week and um, had all these different health issues, multiple things going on. Uh, and he would come he would come to these appointments and and just complain and complain. And she would find herself just um, contracting with irritation and a sense of hopelessness. And this happened time after time and she would prescribe things and send them away. And then one time she she caught herself contracting in this way and 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 stopped and just really instead of just moving into fixing with treatments she stopped and just looked at him and she said, life is so painful for you, isn't it? It must be really hard not to give up. And she recounts how there was a silence and then it was as if their, their roles fell away and they were just two people. She was no longer stuck in her feeling inadequate about not being able to help him and, and seeing him as a difficult patient. And he was just able to acknowledge his pain. And she says that out of this, this came a kind of warmth and creativity in which they would be able to, were able to look at possibilities for healing would say even more than that, that that true healing was happening in that moment. In, in the moment where they both dropped their ideas about self. Stopped contracting. And in that sense of opening, things could change. They could shift. She continues with her commentary. The Buddha and Puna exchanged gifts. She surrendered herself just as she was, with dignity, humility and respect. The Buddha accepted her material offering completely and then conferred his confidence that the kind of freedom she really wanted would come about. 
Rarely do we give ourselves or each other the gift of being fully received and seen just as we are. Some years ago, in the midst of a very difficult time in my life and practice, a wise teacher gave me the blessing of fully receiving me and seeing me just as I was. Because I was so completely received, right in the midst of my own fear, hurt and judgment, I felt the safety to let go, a miracle that allowed a deep understanding, compassion and freedom to arise. And with this, with this affliction of our, of our self-conceit, whether it be uh, I am better or I am worse, it is something that has to be, has to be worked on at the, at the heart level because it's, it has this, this emotional component. It's one of the reasons why I feel it's so important to, to practice loving-kindness meditation as well as our, our Zen practice, whatever it may be, to acknowledge the, the ways in which our hearts are, can, be, can be constricted and blocked and to, to consciously open the heart and, and not only to our own parts of ourselves that we wish would wish not to face or reject, keep at bay, but also to others to be opening to the annoying person, the distressed person. Puna's story inspires me as a practitioner and teacher to see the Buddha in everyone I meet, no matter what their circumstances, and to be able to acknowledge that they too can awaken. May we all see and acknowledge the potential for awakening each of other and together make the commitment to help each other enter the stream, as the Buddha did for Puna that day long ago. had more but I think we'll have to uh, stop here and recite the four vowels since our time is up. <clears throat>